this time, please gift Andy with wisdom to direct our thoughts. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you. All right, uh, I would love somebody to read Titus 1 for us, 16 verses, uh, if you're willing. Uh, just get us started. I would appreciate it. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of, our, of God our Savior. For Titus, my true child and a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of the realm, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths, and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To be pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. All right, thank you. All right, so we are right in the middle of the section in uh, verse 5 through 9 in which he is giving qualification for elders. He said, the reason I left you in Crete is that you should appoint, um, ordain uh, elders in every town as I directed you. Uh, the goal here is a healthy local church in each of these towns led by godly men. Um, and these uh, qualifications are essential uh, to healthy church life. Um, people need leadership. Human beings need to be led. And so, in order for the gospel to make sufficient progress in Crete, we need local churches, we need healthy local churches. And so, we've been through this, uh, we started going through the qualifications last time. It began uh, in verse 6 with the word uh, blameless or above reproach, which I commended to you um, uh, a 
a sense of the word meaning not perfect, for then there could be no elders. Based on 1 John, if anyone says, I have not sinned, he's a liar. Uh, so we all have uh, sin. So it does not mean perfection. But I've uh, resided it in the reputation the individual has of those who know him well. So his wife, his children, his friends, the community, the people he lives with, none of them would have any reason he couldn't serve as an elder. That's what I think it means to be above reproach. Reproach being an insult or a slander or a hard word said. That person can't serve because of this reason. That would be a reproach. This individual, there's no one that would do that. No one would come forward and say, he cannot serve as an elder for the following reasons. No one would say that. No one is claiming that the person's perfect, but they're saying there's no reason he can't serve. That's what I mean by, that's what I think it means above reproach. Any comments or questions about this? This is just review, but this is what we're looking for. No one in the community would say they can't serve as an elder. No good reason they can't serve. All right. If not, we'll keep going. Above reproach, uh, it's the first thing he says. And then husband of one wife, um, a one-woman man, literally that if he's married, his marriage is exemplary. I think that's what we came to. He, he has uh, a good marriage. His wife would say he's a good husband. Uh, his marriage could be a pattern that young couples who are just beginning their married life could follow. He's a role model in marriage if he's married. Why do I say that, if he's married? Went through all this. This is all review from last week. But why do I say, if he's married? That's not a requirement. Although it seems like it might be. If you have a simple reading, he is the husband of one wife. We felt that with Scripture interpreting Scripture, we think that the very man who wrote these words was not married. And yet we think he could serve as an elder. So I, that's why I said the best phraseology I would choose is if he is married, he, is, uh, he has an exemplary marriage. That's the language that I used. And the same thing, if he has children, and if those children are dependent on him, if they're still living at home and he has a direct influence over their behavior, then they need to meet these following criteria. Um, they are believers and not open to the charge of being wild or disobedient. So I was trying to guard from saying that if a man has a 30-year-old son that goes off the rails and renounces faith, that doesn't mean that that man now didn't do a good job as a father or that he thereby can't serve as an elder, etc. But if he's got young children growing up in the home and the children, you know, love going to church, they respect him, they speak the words of the faith, etc., they're minors, they're dependent on him, that's what seems relevant to this verse. Yeah, Rick. Uh, you know, there, there are examples of pastors, and, and I'm sure elders as well, where the spouse leads them. Yeah. Uh, in that case, would a pastor need to step down? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I was saying not just that, but a widow, widower. You know, an individual who loses his wife uh, through through cancer or a car accident. But he doesn't have to step down. No, and and. But how about the, the, the pastor whose wife leaves? Well, the only reason he would step down is, is if she left him because he was unfaithful or he committed a sin or, yeah, if he's innocent. You see, the reason he would have to stop, the only reason a man should, should have to stop being an elder 
um, you know, if he's still able-bodied of, of sound mind and spirit, he's physically able to do it, is if he sinned. And that sin has been proven by a testimony of two or three witnesses, and he's been through that process, and he is disqualified. That's the only reason. So if his wife sins, that doesn't disqualify him. Uh, that's what I would say. Any other questions or thoughts about that? I mean, that's a terrible tragedy, obviously, but it does happen. Very, very sad. Okay, let's keep going. So the children are not open to the charge of being wild or disobedient. Then we went again, kept going in verse 7. Uh, because the overseer is a steward of God's work, he's going to have to give an account for what he does. It's a weighty thing. All right? Very weighty. I feel it. It comes from the book of James. It says that... Um, that you know, that teachers, those that teach, are going to have to give a more strict accounting. They are, they are, uh, there's a higher level of scrutiny on their lives, not just at the human level, but by Christ. So if you are an elder, you're going to have to give an account for your life and your doctrine in ways that a non-elder doesn't. That's a higher level of accountability. And so the elder is, uh, is accountable he is a steward of God's work. He's uh, responsible to give an account for what he does. Because of all that, it's very, very serious. He must be, again, above reproach. So second time we've got that, no need to go back into it again. But I think what it means is the candidate, initially, in verse 6, the candidate should be above reproach. And then the veteran elder should be above reproach. Does that make sense? He's been at it a long time now, and there's still no reason he can't serve as an elder. That's pretty significant, isn't it? He's done a good job. He's been faithful. His doctrine's solid. His lifestyle is solid. He's still blameless. Does that make sense? So that's a candidate is blameless or above reproach, and then the elder uh, himself, having been an elder, is, not, uh, is above reproach. All right, since he is entrusted, he must be blameless. And then he goes into these words, which we didn't talk about last time. Now, the first uh, in the, you read, Jim, I think, the ESV, uh, not arrogant, is that what it says? Uh, verse 7, after the word above reproach. You must not be arrogant. Not arrogant. NIV has overbearing. So quick. All right, well, we'll get to quick-tempered next, but let's stick with the first one. So those are the two translations we have so far. Not overbearing, not arrogant. Any other possible translations of that? Self-willed. What translation do you have? Uh, New American Standard. Self-willed. All right, so after... Uh, you know, after not over, uh, uh, above reproach, or, you know, he's not beyond reproach, not self-willed. That's interesting. All right, so what do these words, this cluster of words mean to you? He's not overbearing, arrogant, self-willed. Must be blameless. <laughs> Sounds right. <laughs> but we're getting, in, we're, we're getting into some details about what that looks like, all right? What kind of person is like this, overbearing, arrogant, whatever. He himself first, above others. Okay. He holds himself in a higher esteem than he does others. Would you think that the parallel expression in, in Peter where it says, not lording it over the flock, I think it's relevant to an individual who tends to lord it over. Or Jesus said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their highest high officials exercise authority over them. What is that individual into? What do they like? Power. They like the trappings of power. 
They enjoy being greeted in the marketplace, right? Like the scribes and Pharisees. They like the places of honor. They like, they like the trappings and the, and the perks of power. That's what this individual, don't have that person as an elder. That's what he's saying. Don't, don't have somebody that's going after that. They, they get their kicks out of lording it over people or being in a dominant position. All right? Why is that important for elders not to be that way? Because this is a negation, not overbearing or not arrogant. Why is it important the individual not be like this? Not a Christ-like example. Okay. What's it like for the flock? It's pretty harmful. How, I agree with you. How is it harmful? It's painful to them. Uh, hypocrisy. Just as a wife would say, <clears throat> not very well under an overbearing and, and arrogant husband. Uh, anybody in position of authority has yes. uh, got to have a gentleness and a humility attendant with that office. So what's the root sin of such an individual? What's the, at the core of his being on this? It's definitely pride. He's got an arrogance in which he feels he is intrinsically superior to the members of the church, right? He feels like he's just a better person than they are. He's at a higher level than they are. That's a very damaging um, image. See, for me, I feel like it is important for the pastor to realize that every sin that the people struggle with, he, he could struggle with it too. Even if he doesn't struggle with that particular sin, he's a sinner just like they are. They need to feel that he he definitely feels that way, that he is a sinner saved by grace. It actually affects the way that he shepherds, all right? There's another aspect here. It's not just superiority, but I, I think it would be harshness in his demeanor. There's a harshness in when you come to him. And uh, it's really beautiful in Richard Sibb's classic, The Bruised Reed and the Smoldering Flax. He zeroes in on the passage, which was in Isaiah first and then picked up uh, in Matthew, speaking of Jesus. The bruised reed he will not break, and the smoldering wick he will not snuff out. What, what does that tell you about Jesus? Bruised reed he does not break. He's tenderhearted. Gentle, would you say, Chris, gentle? He is gentle in dealing with broken sinners. In a calculated sort of way, he's, he's measured out just what you can take and what you need, yeah. and he gives you that. So if you're going to add the word calculate, which I love, I would say there's a skillful gentleness to Jesus. He's, he's a gardener that's able to come up to this bruised reed that's hanging by a slender green thread and bind that whole thing back up together and heal it. He's able to take this little smoldering wick that's just about out and fan it into flame. He's able to do that through skillful gentleness in dealing with sinners. Does that make sense? So in the same way, Sib says, pastors should be like that with their people. They should be like Jesus in that regard. This man, he can't do that. He's lording it over the flock. He's overbearing. He's not gentle. He's harsh. He considers himself better than they are. You're not going to get dealt properly with. If you're a bruised reed, you're going to get severed by that guy. If you're a smoldering wick, you're going to get extinguished by him. That's bad. So you need a guy who's got Jesus' skillful gentleness in dealing with broken people, dealing with sinners. Yeah. Uh, there's a, I've been curious about that because there's a difference between gentleness and skillful. You can have the right demeanor and the right heart, mm -hmm. but be lacking the skills. Yeah. Uh, 
or do you think that's a true statement? No, I, I do. So let's let's stay with the image. It's Isaiah. He's just Isaiah's rich with imagery. So what is what is the goal of a ministry? I've already said it, but I want to have you guys say it back to me. What is the goal of a ministry to a bruised reed? What are we trying to do with the bruised reed? Heal it. So what does healing look like in that case? Physical as well as spiritual, but physical first. Right, so you've got this piece of grass, and you could imagine it's broken and hanging down. You could imagine it's binding back up, miraculously reconnecting all the tubules that enable it to receive nourishing moisture and nutrients from the soil. All of that's been bound up, and now it's a robust, strong piece of grass, because you're not going to essentially change your nature, but it's been healed now. All right, the second image is a smoldering flax. When you have been dealt with skillfully, when that whole process is done, what are you? If you're not any longer a smoldering flax, what are you now? A flame. You're like a bonfire. In that case, the image is uh, you want more fire, more heat, more light, more of a robust. You're on fire for, for God, right? So you've got zeal, you've got energy, you've got heat, you've got life, you're alive, you're moving. Jesus does that to you. And so I think a good pastor will do that too, not as well as Jesus, of course. But that's when you're around this individual, you're not fragile anymore five years later. You're stronger now. You've been bound up and you're healed. And you're not flickering or, you know, like a lot of smoke coming anymore. Now you're, a, you're on fire. You're, you're a, a healthy flame burning because you were ministered to by this pastor. Does that make sense? Now, an overbearing or an arrogant person can't do that. He's going to sever that bruised reed. He's going to extinguish that smoldering flax. There, they go out. Any questions about this word, this, uh, this sense of overbearing? So this is a challenge. I mean, I'm an, I'm an elder. I read these things like, my goodness, the job description is high. But I think the thing is just be humble. When you're interacting with people every time, remember, you're just like they are. You're just as much in need of grace as they are. Their sins, you know, you are just as capable you're in this together. Their experiences are actually going to help you in your sanctification too. If you have a sense like that from the pastor, it's going to be a good situation, I think. All right? Any other comments on overbearing, not overbearing, or arrogant? He needs, yeah. To God, okay? Um, <clears throat> to be arrogant in your manner. Um, it, it dishonors God. It dishonors the image right. that you are supposedly bearing before others and and just destroys the people yeah and so it's so forgetful you forget who you are you forget that you yourself are a sinner saved by grace you forget that everything you have you receive from god you forget that god hates arrogance and boasting god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble it gives our critics lots of ammunition though um case Philip Gully, progressive Christianity guy, who wrote a a book about that. But basically, he takes a a truth and just turns it on its head like Satan. (laughs) But it's it's sad, and he uses this power play of an elder as an example. That's what brought it to mind. Yeah, I'm not aware of that, but that sounds pretty devastating. Um, At any rate... So if he's not 
overbearing or arrogant. Instead, he's humble, he's kind-hearted, he's skillful at dealing with broken-hearted sinners. That's what we're looking at. All right, let's keep going. Um, and then it says, not uh, quick, quick-tempered. All right, and this, this is very similar to 1 Corinthians 13, where it says, not easily angered. So this is, it's not loving to be quick-tempered. So Rick mentioned very well when we first started looking at Titus that this is all a matter of self-control. But let's talk more about what's the problem with the guy that's quick-tempered, loses his temper quickly. I mean, what's... what's Something so small aggravates the heck out of him. Yeah. So why is that a problem? Road rage. Road rage. (laughs) It invites anger from others. Yeah. So if you get angry, you're going to make other people angry. All right? It escalates instead of de-escalating problems. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've talked about it. You know, individuals that put out fire with kerosene, you know, just ho- hosing kerosene on the thing. And like when they got done, now the whole house is on fire, you know. And I think it's because they come at it with anger. Now, again, I believe whenever, whenever there's carnal anger involved, there's a root idolatry. There's some idolatry in the man's heart. He wants something that he's not getting. It may go back to the very discussion we're having. He wants superiority. He wants a feeling that he's, you know, he's, there's an arrogance and a pride in him. And when he doesn't get it, he gets angry, right? A very good example of this is Nebuchadnezzar, right? Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Remember this? And he set up this, this, uh, this obelisk, this golden obelisk. He wanted everybody to bow down and worship. And everybody did, except three men. So was Nebuchadnezzar happy with his batting average at that point? <laughs> Not at all. He wanted them to bow, right? And when they refused, remember they said, we don't need to answer you about this, you know, the God that we serve is able to rescue us, but even if he doesn't, we want you to know we're not bowing down. What was Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to that? Before that, though, he got, he got purple with rage. He went insane almost. He's just stupid, crazy, angry. And how do we know that? He wanted the furnace heated seven times hotter. That's the wrong move, bro. Make it cooler. Use green wood. Why? Why would I say that? It's a word. Taking a lot longer to die. But he's just nuts. He's crazy because why? What's his root idolatry at that point? He has a central idol. What is it? Himself. And they're not bowing down and he is enraged. I would say then anyone with an anger problem, you have an anger problem. You got an, I got an idolatry issue. And it's generally the same one. You're worshiping yourself. And you expect your wife or your kids or an employee or a fellow church member to realize your greatness and to deal with you properly. And they're not, and therefore you're getting angry. So I would say you got to kill that idol. You know, you got to kill, kill that idol. So any other thoughts on this not quick-tempered? It feels like when you can't win an argument with logic or intelligence, you win just by shutting it down with that kind of an anger and that kind of a, a domineering type of presence or spirit. Yeah, we've noted before there are two kinds of anger that we experience in life, righteous and sinful. Would you guys agree? There's righteous anger, and then there's sinful or carnal anger. All right? What's the difference between the two? 
let's describe righteous anger. When is it right to get angry? Jesus got angry. When is it right to get angry? Say again. When something grieves God. Okay. Something is an affront to God. If God's honor is impugned, God's glory is attacked, that's reasonable. Is that the only reason to get angry? Sort of like Jesus went into the temple and saw that they were being a den of thieves. Yeah, so he got angry, I think. I think it's pretty clear. All right, but that's not all. Jesus got angry with his disciples when he, he, they were trying to shut down the children coming, let the little children come, and he got, he got irritated at them. All right? He also got, he got angry uh, when there was somebody that, wanted, that needed to be healed, and he said, which is lawful, to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? He, to save life or to kill? And they wouldn't answer him. Remember that? They refused to give an answer. And Jesus got angry at them. That is not so much the glory of God being impugned, but that's a horizontal issue where they're being unkind to another person. And for their own reasons, they're willing to withhold healing from this person because of their principles. And that made him angry. So I would say, look at the two great commandments, the vertical and the horizontal. Those are the reasons why we should get angry. All right. If some, if there's that matter of injustice toward another human being, it's a good reason to get angry. If there's a matter of God's honor or glory being impugned or whatever, but we should be very suspicious when we're at the heart of it, right? When we're involved, when our honor is being impugned, when we are being treated in a way we don't think right, that's, I would be suspicious of that anger because that's the norm of carnal anger. Go ahead. Yeah, it strikes me that what we were talking about earlier about the arrogance and the, the, uh, the, it, as true of the quick temper too, um, the, I, I'm thinking as to all these things my hand has made so all these things came to be declares the Lord that this, this is the man to whom I will look he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word and the, both of these things are um, will be are opposite in, or contrary to, a, to that spirit to that contrite and humble spirit mm-hmm. uh, the man with that contract will not be quick-tempered, uh, will not be here again. Yeah, let's, let's talk about a, a, a good alternative in the ministry uh, to being quick-tempered. And a very good example of this is in 2 Timothy 2. So just maybe one page over, just go to the left, one page maybe, and go to 2 Timothy 2. And... Um, If you look at, uh, if somebody could read verse 14 and then verses 22 through 26. So verse, 2 Timothy 2, verse 14, and then verses 22 through 26. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be, a quarrel, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting <coughs> with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. All right, so if you look at verse 14, 
there's a specific sin pattern that Paul's trying to, to work on with Timothy. What is it? In verse 14, 2 Timothy 2, 14, what is the sin pattern he doesn't want him to indulge in? Quarreling about words. Quarreling about words. What's the sin pattern he addresses in verse 22, 23? Look at verse 23. Stupid argument. Isn't that the same thing? All right. And then verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not, what? Quarrel. So if you go back then to verse 22, you might think the evil desires of youth would be sexual in nature. Like a young man is going after the young women, right? He's got a strong sexual drive. And that is true, but that's not what Paul's addressing here. He's addressing a different kind of sinful desire of youth. And the issue is quarreling. And I would say, let's keep going, a prideful, angry quarreling about words. Now, why would that be an occupational hazard of a teacher of the Word of God? You're a teacher of the Word of God. Why would it be an occupational hazard that you're going to get into arguments about words? Distracting the message. Any chance that people are going to push back on your teaching ever? I can tell you, as a teacher of the Word of God, it happens from time to time. Occasionally, people disagree with things that I teach, all right? Well, what should I do when they disagree? Well, what shouldn't I do according to 2 Timothy 2? What shouldn't I do? Quarrel with them. Don't do that. And going over to Titus, I shouldn't be quick-tempered either. I shouldn't be angrily quarrelsome about words when I'm a teacher. Suppose someone does disagree with me. What What does Paul tell Timothy to do? Those who oppose, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them, you could add the word almost, eventually to a knowledge of the truth. So that implies a certain patience like a farmer, right? He's going to be patiently letting God's word do its work, right? Let's take, for example, I I don't shy away from the fact that I am reformed in my soteriology, generally known as Calvinistic, all right? Not everyone that I've ever taught has agreed with Calvinism. Um, It's easy to quarrel over it. But there's no benefit in it at all. My desire is to show my biblical reasons why I have these convictions, and then wait. Wait for that plant to grow in their minds and hearts. And be okay if it never does. We're not saved by Calvinistic soteriology in terms of us agreeing with it and assenting to it. And so, therefore, this, this, this is one of the most important passages for me as a pastor. If people disagree with me, don't get angry at them. Reason with them. Teach them. Pray for them. Be humble. But then going back to the Titus passage, don't be quick-tempered or arrogant concerning them. Hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they'll come to their senses. All right, and escape the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. It's like, well, that's pretty heavy-handed. It's like, well, the devil is very active. And he's able to ensnare people in false conceptions of the word of God or false practices that we're fighting the devil every day. So nobody should be saying, I don't know why you're even bringing the devil into this. This is just between you and me. It's like, look, bro, if your eyes could be opened into the invisible spiritual realm, you'd realize we are fighting demonic forces every day. 
My desire is to set you free from false doctrine, to set you free from false understandings, to set you free from sin patterns, etc., and myself too. I want to be set free as well. That's the patient instruction that the, the teacher of the Word of God should do. Instead, the young man frequently wants to bicker and argue and fight and win the chess match and, and arrogantly you know, wrestle the person logically to the mat and pin him. Don't do that. Don't do that. Teach the Word of God. Be patient. Don't get angry. And pray for him. That's the image here. Any questions about that or comments? All right, so let's go back to Titus. Um, and so not quick-tempered. Instead, this person's slow to anger. He's got a long fuse. Doesn't get upset easily. All right? He's very patient when wronged. Patient when wronged. And pastors get wronged. Elders get wronged. And, and you're just like, don't take it to heart. Don't take it to heart, you know? I've never had anyone so enraged at me as here at this church. It takes a lot of energy to get enraged at someone. <laughs> Why were they so angry at me? Well, it's because of what I taught. And I need to realize, look, they're not angry at me. They're not getting upset at me. They don't even really know me. They're getting angry at the doctrine. They're getting angry at what I'm teaching. They didn't want to hear the truth. They didn't want to hear it. And so to be humble about it and not, I would say, honestly, not take it personally. You know, didn't Moses say that? Moses and Aaron, you're not angry at us. You're angry at God. Who are we? We're nothing. Don't get angry at us. We're just the messengers. By the way, do people tend to shoot the messenger? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a long-standing pattern. Didn't the Jews shoot basically every messenger God sent their way? Was there ever a prophet your fathers didn't persecute? They shot all the messengers, all right? So a pastor should expect to fit into that. Like he's going to be, people are going to shoot the messenger. If you preach a convicting sermon that deals with a very sensitive topic and you deal with it biblically and thoroughly, any chance someone in the, in the congregation is going to get angry at you. Martin Luther went to the nth degree. He's one of my favorite, famous quote here. Luther said, you should always preach in such a way that when you get done, people will either hate you or hate their sins. I frankly don't want to preach like that, all right? I don't think that's the best way to say it, but it's certainly memorable. What did Luther mean by that? You should preach in such a way that when you get done, people either hate you or hate their sins. They'd be convicted one way or the other. Yeah, and if they're not going to repent, they generally tend to shoot the messenger. Luther knew that. He, he knew that, they, that people were coming after him because of his doctrine. All right, anything else on, on this? Let's, if not, we'll keep going. All right, not given to drunkenness, all right? So, uh, again, as Rick pointed out, this is another matter of self-control. Just like not quick-tempered, and then the next one is not violent and not pursuing dishonest gain, all of these can be clustered under self-control. So thoughts on this issue of alcohol, on not given to drunkenness. Why does he bring it up? Why is it relevant? The, the, the individual's use of alcohol... Well, he mentions in another place the love feast where some drink to excess and are drunk. Uh, it, again, it's an affront to God and the people around them. It's bad for everybody um, to be around a drunken person. Yeah. So he's not saying that alcohol is a bad thing in and of itself, but the excess of it certainly is, and your ability to control how much you intake is certainly in question here right and 
it's on the list of things that if you see an individual living like this, they should not be deceived that they're converted, right? Isn't it there with homosexuality and other sins? Those people do not inherit the kingdom of God. So we should not say, if you get drunk, you are going to hell, but it is on that list that you shouldn't be deceived, all right? So already, if it's on that list and the pastor's doing it, that's a very bad look, all right? So alcohol is a unique topic in the Bible. It's, it's uh, what I, I remember, I summed up all of the, the teaching about wine in the Bible under the topic of dangerous blessing, all right? Why would I call wine a blessing? Now, I, per- I want you to know, I, I haven't had any alcoholic drink since I was converted, actually before I was converted. That's my own conviction. I don't, I don't think I judge other people about that. I, I try not to. I don't feel judgmental about it. I'm just telling you my own personal habits. But I do say the, that wine in the Bible is presented as a blessing. Why would I say that? Why would I call it a blessing? Are there Bible verses that link wine among the blessings that God gives to a people? Yeah, grain and new wine abound, this kind of thing. It's that agricultural listing of, of, you know, not just a land flowing with milk and honey, but a land flowing with wine is uh, one of the languages of blessing in the Old Testament. It's used that. And there's more evidence, and that's Jesus changing the water to wine. So I would think he was intending a blessing for the, mari- for the, for the wedding, right? It was a blessing. So we call it a blessing. That's why I call it blessing. Why do I call it a dangerous blessing? Well, what happens? So, Jack, you say it affects your judgment. Well, what happens as a result? You don't think like your 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 thinking is is skewed. Your slur. I mean, it's it's uh, uh, it, it sort of taking away the uh, maybe the mental process that goes with making good judgment. For sure. Now, you've been involved for many years in prison ministry. Would you not say there's a number of men in, that are incarcerated because of either drugs or alcohol? Probably most of them in there were either under the influence of drugs or alcohol. I would say, I would, say, I would estimate that uh, probably 80% of them were in there because of, of things like that. When you think about how significant that statistic is. And you realize because of either drugs or alcohol, people went beyond boundaries and committed murders or other crimes or brawl, they were brawling or something like that because they were affected, their judgment was, was impaired. And then going to what Rick said, uh, they, are, they lose all self-control and they do what the most base animalistic instincts cause them to do, whether sexually or physically, in terms of violence or crimes, and, it, and they end up in prison as a result. So that's why it's dangerous. And the Bible, is, the Bible presents repeatedly the danger of drunkenness in many, in many ways. It's this thing that you were talking about, the Bruce Reed, things like that. Brought across a lot of that in the prison. Yeah. You know, they have done things wrong, they know they've done things wrong, but they still have that notion in them to be the right people, do the right thing, but they have been deeply bruised you might say there, and I think that's one one reason I like to be involved in prison ministry because 
you have the opportunity to to fan that that, that spark that's there. Yeah, Jim, would you read the drunkenness verse in ESV again, just because it's a slightly different phraseology? Yes. Um, just just on wine, just on, on drunkard. You must not be arrogant or tempered or a drunkard. Just a drunkard. I think there are other verses that use addicted. There's like addiction language. And that's one of the problems with alcohol is its addictive nature. Um, that it, it's jealous and wants more and more and more. And you, it's never enough. And so it becomes then the god of that person's life. If you look, you talk about somebody who's an overt, no doubt about it, alcoholic. They are absolutely enslaved to it. It's everything that they do in their lives. They, and the Bible verse says, they, they basically say, when can I get another drink? That's what they're living for. And, and you know, it's tragic because people are deceived often in thinking that they're in control of it, that they can control it, and they're on a slippery slope. So it's a dangerous, a dangerous topic. And, there, and therefore, Paul li lists it here in the behavior patterns that would disqualify an individual from serving as an, as an elder. If they are drunkards, if they're given to drunkenness, they can't serve as an elder. And they may, based on the other passage, may not even be converted at all. So that, that's, that's how dangerous this whole thing is. So he says not given to drunkenness. Anything more about that? It, it intrigues me that they're called spirits. Yeah. And I'm not saying that I don't you know, never imbibed or known imbibed, but at the same time, it's not lost on me that, you know, much alcohol is referred to as spirit. I think the demons get involved. I think when someone's had too much to drink, the demons are mobilized and start suggesting things to their impaired judgments that lead to crimes. So I think there is that demonic aspect uh, of it where demons actually do get involved because of the alcohol. So that's true. I find it interesting that you have a tendency to, somebody's in that capacity that they really, there's something going on. And I've heard a pastor preach on this years ago that they're running away from something. Yeah. They should be facing it because when you're running away from something and you go out and you do something like say you're turning to alcohol or you're turning to drugs, when you get back, that same situation that you ran away from is still there. Yeah. And all, all you've done is make your head effective, make your heart effective as a different person because yeah. what you put in you is not God the Father made you to put in. Yeah. Now, notice what it doesn't say. It, um, there, there, is a, uh, there are battles that were fought over two, two letters in one word having to do with this whole topic. It has to do with um, um, church covenants, and there's frequently a statement about alcohol in church covenants. And there's a difference between the use of alcohol and the abuse of alcohol. Is there any difference between forbidding the use of alcohol and forbidding the abuse of alcohol? What's the difference between those two? It's only two letters. Abs. Abs. <laughs> okay, the ab. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. What is the difference? Yeah. One drink. One drink. Okay. This way it plays out in the real world. All right. But do you think it's right for church covenants to forbid the use of alcohol or only the abuse of alcohol? Only abuse. If you forbid the use of alcohol, what are you committing to as a church? Not one person can have one drink. Ever. Yeah. Did Jesus drink alcohol? 
There are clear indications that he did because Jesus said, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus said, thereby, just put it together, that he drank alcohol, but he was not a drunkard. Neither was he a glutton. And so therefore, I would have to say that to forbid the use of alcohol is legalistic because it goes beyond what the scripture does. Scripture does not make normative for every true follower of Jesus to never drink any alcohol ever. And so I think it is right for churches to move from the use of alcohol being forbidden to the abuse. And I think drunkenness is a clear abuse of alcohol. Would you guys agree that that's abuse of alcohol? Now, of course, the problem is, how do you know when you're drunk? That's where the slippery slope comes in. So for myself, I, I actually gave up drinking any alcohol probably a couple of years before I was converted. I came from an alcoholic family, and I saw the effect of alcohol on my parents. It literally killed my father eventually, destroyed his organs, um, destroyed his liver and his kidneys, and he died from it. And he was a man who I never saw him openly drunk. But he drank every night, and he drank himself into the grave uh, because he had jaundice at the end of his life. My, wife, my mom saw him in the sunlight, and he looked yellow. And by then, the damage was so great, there wasn't anything. They gave him three to six months to live. And then soon after that, his kidneys failed, and they gave him hours to live. So that was my story. And, you know, so I, I don't want to be legalistic, but I am happy with my conviction, my, my commitment for myself. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm fine with it. Besides which, you go into an average convenience store like a BP gas station, and there's lots of non-alcoholic beverages, uh, beverage options. Have you noticed? Like how many different non-alcoholic beverage off, uh, options would you say in an average well-stocked uh, convenience store? I would say 200. I mean, they have like six different kinds of iced tea. I mean, they have sweet, raspberry, extra sweet. They got like six versions of iced tea. Lemon flavor, you got it all. Don't all right. <laughs> so at any rate, I, I think it's important that we not be legalistic, but I think you got to be super careful about this thing. It's a slippery slope. How do you know? And so just err on the side of being cautious, that seems to be. But at any rate, drunkenness is out. If this individual's uh, a drunkard, he can't serve as an elder. You know, Pastor Davis, I find it interesting. I helped a dear friend, Christian friend of mine move from Franklinton out to uh, North Sacramento. And uh, he would go take care of stuff, and I would go for walks. I walked into a CVS store, and I know it's not here, but I walked into that CVS store. There's a whole aisle dedicated to that thing. Walked into a 7-Eleven, which we don't have in this state anymore, same thing. And it's really disappointing and sad to me to you, you see things like that because I'm like, what is the difference from out there to here? I think because of what the way things are that we, we, we need things to be, that you don't see it being a constant going into a CVS or 7-Eleven or something like that. Yeah. And it just really saddened me. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, you look at the history of our country, and I don't remember the number of the amendment that was prohibition that, that led to it, but there was one of the, a constitutional amendment forbidding alcohol leading to the whole prohibition era. Well, what's interesting to me, though, is the, is the movement that led up to that successful effort. 
to change the Constitution, the temperance movement. There's reasons why it was successful. And it has to do with just the incredible track record of damage that alcohol had done in families across the country. I mean, it, and women in particular, like Carrie Nation and others, were like sick to death of it, and they moved out. And I think they went too far. I'm not supporting that prohibition was a good law. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there was a culture and a reason why. So I, I would err on the side of alcohol being dangerous more than a blessing. So if you are in the blessing side, just be careful. That's all. Anyway, uh, let's move on. Um, by the way, when I preached on this, I was preaching through Genesis, and you know how Noah got, Noah got drunk and got into that difficulties with his son, you know, Ham and, and Cursed Be Canaan and all that. So I preached, and I preached on alcohol and uh, called it a dangerous blessing, and a church member was very upset at me. It was one of the most passionate responses I ever got because he was upset about the blessing side of the sermon. He thought I should have preached, a, a, you know, a basically... A, abstinence-based sermon, completely. And I just couldn't go there biblically. You know what I'm saying? I just can't, I can't get there biblically. I can't say, I can't, I'm getting up in front of the whole church and I'm saying none of you should ever use fermented uh, drinks. Go ahead. Uh, one of the scriptures that comes to my mind is Isaiah 55, 1. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and give us no money, come by and eat. Come Wine and milk. Without money and without price. I know, I preach that too. <laughs> yeah, you can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. All right, let's keep going. All right, uh, not given to drunkenness and then not violent. I don't know that there's any point in doubling back on this. It's just related. But it's just interesting that he says not quick-tempered and not violent. So it's like in case you missed it, all right, there, there needs to be none of that, all right? I think it's interesting in the sin list in Galatians, the acts of the flesh are obvious. One of them is brawling. Any of you guys struggle with that? Not really. <laughs> I've actually, in all my 25 years here, never dealt with anyone who sat in my office and said, Pastor, I got to tell you, I am struggling with the sin of brawling. <laughs> I mean, what is that? What is brawling? What does it mean to brawl? I think it starts, I think it starts off as a war, war of words, and then somebody's not happy with the word, they decide, I'm going to come over there and get you. Yeah. Couldn't it start out as a, a thought? Right. Still be said. But if the word has any meaning, it goes beyond any thoughts or words. It's physical. It's literal fists. We're talking about a fist fight, right? Isn't that brawling? You know. I have personal experience with that. Okay, Chris. <laughs> and, and my older brother, um, who is no longer living, but he and his friends used to go over to a local beach area and just beat the stuff out of each other. And the next morning, I would see him, and he's bruised and bloody, and what in the world did you do? Oh, we, we did, and we, and, and do it again. Yeah. Uh, the next week, I, it just. Well, I saw evidence of this. I, I went to a minor league hockey game in Louisville. And uh, suddenly in the stands, a fight broke out between some guys. It was near to us, but not completely close. So I, I was with Christy, and I was like, whoa. You know? and, and then this woman came, and she had a towel folded up in her purse, ready to wipe her man's face. And she said, oh, no, not again. And she pulled the towel out. So this seemed to be a regular 
pattern with this guy. <laughs> it's, just, it's like kind of what he does on a Friday night. You know, it's like what we do. So like I said, I've never had anyone come to my office and say, hey, look, Pastor, I'm really struggling with this. If he were, I'd say, I want to help you do better with this. You know, I want to help you grow in this area. <laughs> It's been less, Pastor. I would say in 2022, I got into 13 brawls, and in 2023, only seven. I said, oh, good, we're making progress in the whole brawling thing. Look, all of that's just humor. That has never happened. None of it's ever happened. So anyway, clearly violent means something has happened in the physical realm. Some property has been damaged, or someone has been struck, or something like that. Clearly, this does not line up with a self-controlled man. A relationship in the order here because he's talking about this quarreling. Yeah, and then drunkenness. Anger, and then there's drinking, and, and then there's violence. the violence, violence. The response of all this. Yeah, yeah, and I again, we're dealing with men because only men can be elders, and so these are sins that there's some men that struggle with this. They struggle with their anger, and and they need to be self-controlled people. Let's just keep going. So this individual is a self-control. He's not violent. He's got a, a gentleness. Um, to him, etc. And then next, not pursuing dishonest gain. Now, what is this addressing? Not pursuing dishonest gain. This is another big temptation in life. What are we talking about here? We're talking about money, right? Material possessions. So this individual is self-controlled concerning money. So first of all, he's not going to go after dishonest gain. Meaning what? What dishonest gain? Huh? Stealing, okay. Bad business. Right, so bad business practices is something that, you know, God delights in an honest scales, he says in the Old Testament. It's a big deal for God is an honest scale. What does that mean, an honest scale? Like you go to get 10 shekels of wheat. I want to be sure that merchant is using an honest scale. Right? He doesn't have, like metaphorically, his thumb on the scale like, a, like the butcher does. You know what I'm saying? Where you're paying for the, the weight of his thumb. So that's dishonest. So this individual doesn't do that in his business. He is known in the community as being an honest merchant or an honest you know, worker. And he's not given that. But larger, the, the spotlight here is put on his entire approach to money. So he says in 1 Peter 5, he's not in it for money. He's not in the ministry for money. He's not trying to, uh, to get paid. That's not, you know, and this is not addressing people like me that, that are vocational pastors. That's not the issue. The issue is, are you greedy for money? Are you in life for money? That's, the, that's the, yeah, Greg, go ahead. Yeah, I'm kind of curious. Is, is the NIV uh, dishonest game? Yeah. Uh, what does your translation say? He talks about not, uh, not greedy for gain. Not, uh, what should it say? He's not greedy for gain. Greedy. And uh, you got, I, I would assume it's possible to be greedy for gain and, and yet gain and going after <coughs> it with honesty, not, yeah. not, not doing scams or dishonesty. No. So I'm curious, do you know if the Greek... I've not looked at it. It's a, good, it's a good question. Is there a sense of dishonesty in this? In any case, greed is idolatry, it says openly, a covetousness. So in general, I would say the individual handles money properly. He realizes that he's not in life for money. He's not pursuing money as his central goal in life. Uh, you pr- he proves that by being generous to the poor and needy or being generous to the church, etc. His m- money is not his God. 
Money is not as idle. And money is one of the number one, uh, number one uh, competitors to God. No one can serve both God and money. And so this individual is not like that. So, you know, like John D. Rockefeller, he was a uh, deacon, a Baptist deacon. Of course, he was getting kickbacks from the rail, railroads for, for his deals and all that. So there are some questions about how it was that he built Standard Oil to be the monster that it was. Uh, as long as he tithed. Can you imagine Rockefeller being in your church and tithing? I mean, what would you do? I mean, he was worth a billion dollars back when that was a lot of money, all right? Imagine a tithe of that. You're a, you're a standard little Baptist church, and you get $100 million from this guy. <laughs> what are you going to do with $100 million? Anyway, there that is. Um, so he's not, not greedy. Instead, all right. That's a year or two. What's that? That's every year or two. Yeah, he was, he was unbelievably wealthy. All right, let's keep going. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good. He's self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So we have a bunch of negatives. So if you see any of these things in this individual, he can't be an elder, can't serve as an elder. Now what should we see positively? The first thing it mentioned here is hospitality, all right? Why is that important for an elder? <coughs> hospitality. Well, he's got to love the people he serves. Okay. It's sort of relationship-based. Okay. Um, yeah, his home is a, is a place of ministry. He's, his dinner table is a place of ministry. He's open and generous. He invites people in. It's a place of growth. You know, a lot of the Christian discipleship is caught, not just taught. And so you're, you're there in his home. You're able to see the way he lives, the way he lives his life. So that issue of hospitality is important. All right, brothers, we're out of time. Rick, would you mind, brother, closing us in prayer? Thanks. <coughs> Lord God, once again, we are thankful that you have brought us here in a quiet place to reflect on you, reflect on our lives as, uh, as we choose to worship you. We thank you for convicting us of our sins, even though that can be uncomfortable at times. We thank you for our teaching here. We just ask that we will go in peace at this time. Proclaiming your name. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.